Hi, my name is Kibali Murethi and I am the host of Ari Diaries. Ari is Kiswahili for Initiative, Spirit and Drive. In the first series, we will be speaking to a number of amazing women who are the embodiment of the Ari spirit. This series is in celebration of International Women's Month, whose themes are Choose to Challenge and Women in Leadership, Achieving an Equal Future in a COVID-19 World. Karibu. Um, hi, my name is Kibali Murethi, and our guest today is Modani Maenge, and I will let you introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Modani Maengi and I am passionate about the power of the mobile phone and the internet to change people's lives. I have worked on this um, at home in Kenya, being the founding director of the Bloggers Association of Kenya um, and in multiple brands across the board. And I am now an international digital strategist working in a global INGO. Wow. Do people get confused about Noni and Modoni? So let me explain. <laughs> There's my personal life, which is, if you're familiar with me and you know me, um, basically most people call me by my nickname. And I have a very big distinction between my personal life and the professional side. The professional side is, you know, Modoni Maingi, which is somebody who is um, very open-minded and flexible, but also very clear that there are professional boundaries to be observed. I don't even know what to say after that. <laughs> Such a dope answer. Okay, tell us tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? So I grew up, um, first of all, I come from a small family. It's just my brother and I. I grew up in Mombasa um, in multiple neighborhoods. So I grew up in Chani, Tuda, Kembeni. And then I left and moved to Nairobi at 18 for university and never left. Um, but I also kind of, I grew up in Eldridge as well till like I was five. So I always feel like I'm, I'm very flexible with location and very comfortable with diverse backgrounds. But at the same time, there's a lot that informs my childhood that does come from Mombasa. Okay. And being that you are a child of many places, we'll get to your current life now, but even growing up, you're, you are a child of many places. What's your concept of home? Home is what you make it. Um, I think what this has helped me do is not be attached to things. In fact, it took me a long time to actually get a flat where I'm furnishing everything. I always used to live in furnished apartments because I felt like I didn't need stuff. I was barely in the house. Um, the jobs I got made me move around a lot locally. And then once I got the INGO job, I was consistently in, in flights. So I was never really at home. But I just feel like, you know, it's whatever you make it, it's whatever little comforts you carry along that just make home home. Okay. Um... What memories do you have of Mombasa? Gosh, I think the interesting thing about Mombasa is that it seems big, but it's actually very small. Okay. It's, it's like a growing up in a little town. Yeah. So everybody knows everybody. Everybody's in everybody's business, but also everybody really cares. Um, <laughs> it's one of those paradoxes. So there's that. I think I, I really miss that genuineness where somebody greets you because they actually want to know about your day, as opposed to what I find is Nairobi culture, where it's very transactional, right? Somebody will say hi to you, and then they'll immediately ask, what do you do? 
I found that a complete culture shift when I moved here. Um, and obviously the food, the fact that you grow up by the, like being on, on the beach is normal. It's just life. Um, there is the heat, which I miss a lot anytime it's cold in the city. And yeah, I think that's that's what I would say is essentially what I remember about about Mombasa. Okay, um, let's get into your a little bit about your professional journey. Um, what do you remember, or rather, what was your first job? What you know, what made you take that job? My first job was actually a brand ambassador, and I used to work for. I don't know. Let me explain what a brand ambassador is. It's basically those. Women, you like to ignore in supermarkets and in bars who are trying to sell you products. <laughs> right? So that was my first job. Um, and you know what? It taught me a lot because if you, can conv- if you can manage to stop somebody, get them to buy something or try something in a supermarket and they don't know who you are, um, it teaches you a lot of life skills. So that was my first job. And then I started working for, but this was sort of like an internship for Code Red did a lot of events, did a lot of TV pilot shoots, then got my first job job, which was a host and producer for a TV show called Urban Hype on NTV. And from there, worked in agencies, moved to the client side, and prep out of corporate into INGO. Okay. <laughs> um, in, your, in your employment um, journey, what are some of the things that... What are some of the challenges that you would say you encountered and how did you maneuver? I think the biggest lesson to learn is not to A, read any emails with tone. Like don't assume the person is angry, yelling at you or whatever because then it gives you a lot of um, emotion when you're responding back. You're now responding from a very emotive state, right? So that's one skill you have to learn. The other skill that you definitely have to learn is how to take feedback without internalizing it and making it personal. So once you've cracked those two things, it just makes navigating those spaces a lot more easier. The third, and it's something, um, you know, that comes from a space of, yes, immense privilege, is do not accept being abused. And specifically, I think the worst form of abuse is is the sexual kind, which happens a lot in offices because you can never heal from certain kinds of abuse. You never will be able to heal from it. And so if that's an environment that you're in, sometimes I think it's it's important to step back and try and find a space that doesn't hold that level of abuse. But as I said, you know, a lot of these things come from privilege. Yes, totally acknowledge that. But I think people really accept a lot more abuse because they assume that that is how that is how spaces are supposed to be or how things are supposed to be but the reality is you can come out of it and you can actually find other spaces um if possible yeah, yeah. wow okay um let me take you back a bit at some point you started your own agency right mm. what was how was that like um it was interesting. I I did it when I was very young. Mm. So I liked the side of the strategy, the meeting clients, the selling. I didn't necessarily enjoy the other parts, which were, you know, when you start a business, you are HR, you are finance, you are, you're literally everything. I didn't enjoy that. I felt like it was taking out a lot from me. So I quit. But that said, I've 
open another business. I've had other businesses ever since after that experience. It's just that now I've learned how to manage delegation or how much um, how much I can actually take on. But also just to, I've just thought about something. It may sound like I'm victim blaming when I say don't take abuse. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. I think I'm just saying that we need to be more aware of abusive environments and find ways, you know, to come out of them and not stay in them too much, right? But yeah, it's always on the perpetrator. If you can report them, report them. Absolutely do. I have done it as well. Mm. I have reported a lot of people who've like overstepped the boundaries and the lines. And you'd be surprised to find that even if you're a junior colleague, that these people are held to account. So that's definitely something that has to be there. And corporations have to make these spaces easier for victims to report and get justice. Okay. And with with you running your own agency, what are some of the what would you say that role taught you about leadership? I think that no job is a small job. Mm-hmm. Um, I find a lot of people have this perception and idea that when you're in a certain position, you shouldn't be doing what we call small jobs. And I know that's very Kenyan English. <laughs> Right? I shouldn't be doing small jobs. I shouldn't be doing, you know, somebody else should be doing this tiny little thing. No, I I think, you know, work is work. The idea is to always just keep things moving. As a leader, your job is to keep things moving. It's to reduce bottlenecks. It's to reduce complexity. It's to ensure that people have the resources and the space to be the best that they can be. And that requires understanding what the small jobs are, understanding the, the complexities that come with these, what you call small jobs. Um, and that's, yeah, I think the biggest lesson. Yeah. All right. Um, you have transitioned from, like, you've played many roles in life. What, so far, moving from your agency to working for clients, for clients, like you said, and then moving to INGO, what has that journey been like for you? Um, I applied for six years for several different roles within the organization I'm currently working in. Mm-hmm. Applied unsuccessfully. <laughs> <laughs> six years. <laughs> for a long time. And then the job that I eventually applied for and that I was successful in was actually the most senior that I had ever applied for. Mm-hmm. Right? So I think it's about constantly applying, reapplying, trying to learn what is it that these people are looking for in these industries, right? And that's just one example. I I mean, even the job that I left before I got into the INGO, I had applied countless times to Safaricom, right? And then, bloop, this role comes in and it's actually a better role than even the other roles I had applied for, right? But I think the process of applying, the process of being interested in fields in certain spaces also teaches you how to engage those spaces. And so that's one thing that I've learned in the journey is to not give up. It's to consistently keep pushing, applying, not to take things personally, as I said, or to, or to make it feel like you are not worthy of that space, right? It's just that you may not be a ready fit at that time. Or what I've even seen in my line of work where last minute, which happens a lot in the INGO space, the funding runs out. Mm-hmm or the donor drops out. And so therefore the rule doesn't exist anymore. It's not because they didn't want you, it just dropped. So there are a lot of factors that, you know, tie into 
why you might not be successful the first time, but also why you'll be even better by the time you're applying, say, the sixth, seventh time, because you've really, really engaged with the subject matter and the industry. Okay. Um, you manage a lot of people, right? Across, just across the... In the country, you're managing teams and people, and then now you're also managing a lot of people. What has, what has that taught you about handling people better? Um, gosh, I don't know that I... <laughs> I think people are so different, right? Um, and the thing that it has taught me is people express themselves very differently. And there's always the loudest person in the room. There's always the more quieter one. There's always a person that prefers written over oral communication. There's people that prefer to have one-on-one sessions with you as opposed to, you know, the large team meetings. And so it's really about being flexible and meeting people at their points of optimized expression. Actually, is how I like to think about it. And... That requires really consistently checking in, stopping the car to ask the important questions. Um, It requires that you do not, because I find this happens a lot and I've experienced it even as myself, where the most toxic person in the room, despite them being such a fantastic performer, is the person that's prioritized, right? And so what that creates, in as much as yes, there will be performance, is you get toxic culture in your team. And so it's also about not tolerating any kind of toxicity. And that comes from really, really deeply engaging with your team, but also engaging with the people your team interacts with, right? Not not allowing them to also be the toxic people (laughs) because they feel like their boss will, you know, have their back. Yes, you should have your team's back, but not in every situation. Okay. Um, 2020 happened. And COVID shut down the world, right? Um, let's start with you personally. How did how would you say your life changed? What are some of the things that completely changed for you? And what are some of the lessons that you learned from those changes? Um, I think that you know, COVID has still shut down the world mm. for a lot of people. Like it's the, the reality is the grief and loss that this pandemic has created and that it continues to create, has not stopped. Um, And I think for me, one of the best lessons, or rather one of the best things I saw out of that pandemic is just how people pulled together in community to help people that were really affected. Um, You know, the, the thing is, governments completely failed, systems completely failed, but people did not. People had community aid funds, they had you know, all kinds of harambees. There are people who were taking care of people's children when certain people were having a difficult time. People really pulled through. And so for me, that spirit of community and, you know, positive community, something that has been a fantastic outcome of the pandemic. And I hope it's something that continues. Okay. And what did you? What are some of the things that changed in the way that you have been working with the the teams that you're working with across the world? And what are some of the lessons that you have picked from those changes and transformations? I think I'm lucky to 
be in a space of work that doesn't require physical presence. I never have been. And so it was easier for me to transition um, into the work from home environment completely because I've always had to work with remote teams, especially in my current job, right? You have people in Oxford, Fiji, um, Australia. I mean, they're everywhere. So you, you just, by natural default, have to understand how to work with remote teams. I think what I found other managers struggling with is the fact that they, their teams have always been physical, um, even when they have to do team building, culture building, etc., it's physical. And so they've struggled with that transition, with not being able to, you know, go to somebody's desk and ask for stuff. Because work from home requires that you also observe that that's somebody's personal space. It's their yes. private space. You know, you can't just always call out of the blue text or... Text them at midnight. Text them at midnight or demand for somebody to turn on their camera. It's their house. <laughs> they don't have to turn on their camera for you. Um, so I think that's something that managers, I think I've seen managers grappling with. But for me, to be very honest, I think I was in a in a in a position where it was easy. Yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things that you did, which you had mentioned or touched on earlier, is that you started a company, um, a media company. Please talk about that. So I've started a media company where we're really focusing on becoming, and also I've taken a break from it because we're building a couple of things here and there, just in case anyone asks. <laughs> um, but I started a media company that I envision being the space where 25 to 35-year-old women go to get news, analysis, and commentary on politics, culture, and entertainment with a very African lens and the reason for this is I wanted a space where you don't feel like you're explaining yourself, right? Like, I feel like anytime we're asked to write about ourselves as Africans, as women, you know, as different identities, the idea is always to explain yourself to somebody else. I'm explaining my experience as a woman. You know, I mean, we have a whole women's month where women are explaining themselves and their difficulties and their struggles, right? Who are they explaining themselves to? It's not other women. It's the people in power who are men, right? They need to be taught or shown how women are struggling, right? And so for me, it's a thing of coming at it as it's tiring to consistently have to explain yourself, right? You want a space where you're just having your own intra-community conversations, having conversations that you've always wanted to have without an explanation backing it up. And so that's the idea behind that space. And there's been a lot of talk about, um, especially people of color, taking charge of their narratives and demystifying just myths and stereotypes and stories and things like that, right? What are you? What would you say you are hoping to do with your company? Especially because sometimes it sounds like that taking power, especially for many people who've not who felt like they've not had it, is a process that takes a while, you know, and people have to be taught to to do that. I don't know if my So my, my, my answer is to that sense, is, yeah. is what I was saying. I, I refuse to center the gaze. Mm. Right? I'm not going to center a white gaze and explain. I'm not going to center a male gaze and explain. I'm not going to center a straight gaze and explain. Right? Taking back power means that you center yourself. 
in the narrative. You say, this is the story that I want to tell without explaining myself. That explaining yourself part isn't taking back the narrative. You're still reacting to a gaze. You're reacting to how people have perceived you, right? What I'm trying to say is we have a space. This is this is what this is you can sit here and you know create what you've always wanted to create without having to explain. Just create it. Whether they understand or don't understand is none of your business. Um the podcast series, of course, because it's happening in March, is focusing almost, if that's the word, on women and mm-hmm. International Women's Month and all these themes that are thrown around. And we have, there's two, there's one choose to challenge and there's one on women in leadership and creating an equal future, right? In a COVID-19 world. Question from just all the things I've said, what does an equal future look, feel, and sound like for you as Noni or Modoni? An equal future looks, feels, and sounds like people beginning to give up holding on to certain privileges, holding on to certain power systems. It means committing class suicide. That's the truth. You can donate all the way from here to Timbuktu, but until the day you're willing to actually commit class suicide, until the day you're willing, you know, as a man to truly acknowledge that, you know, your allyship requires that you completely let go of sort of your heteronormative masculinities, there will be no equality. And, you know, it's it's tiring to constantly, I think, for people experiencing certain things to have to educate and explain and show people why some of these things are important for us to have fair, equitable, equal societies with dignity. It's the job of the ally to teach themselves. They should not have to be taught Right? And it's the job of the ally to let go of these things. Um, and that's from a personal perspective, right? From an institutional point of view, a structural point of view, the buck still stops with governments, it still stops with large-scale corporations. It does not, it is not to say, you know, it starts with you as people. That's bullshit. These people are there to actually work on these issues. That's what they're paid for. That's what they're supposed to do. So, yeah, I think for me, that's what a, a more equal world in COVID-19 looks like. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, COVID-19 is the inequality virus. Yes. Um, something that came out last last year, especially, is that all the countries that were being celebrated as having handled COVID-19 and its ramifications better were all led by women why do you why do you think that is that, that it even got a place where they, those countries had to be highlighted, you know, not not in a bad way, but like, do you, I don't know how to phrase that. Like it, it was almost like it was it was it was something out of the norm that these countries are being led by women and had, handling the virus and its ramifications better. So, so first of all, you know, like I said, COVID nineteen is the inequality virus. COVID nineteen shows you how people truly think and feel, mm-hmm. right? So A, people are soundly surprised that the countries working or really that handled COVID better, in quotes, exactly. <laughs> were led by women. But also B, people have been waiting for Africans to die, like die in mass, right? 
And so they're shocked that Africans are also not dying. Mm. And they've looked for all kinds of reasons as to why they're not dying. Other than the reason that's straight up in their face, which is that wearing masks, washing hands, you know, having having experience from managing things such as Ebola is what has actually... Prepared us almost. Prepared us almost, right? And so it's what I'm saying. It's that... People expect certain people to be the people that are the experts, to be the people that are going to do things well. And, you know, COVID has exposed the opposite, the exact opposite of that. Okay. Um, what would you, what are some of the lessons that you hope that, and this is a very almost vague question, but what are some of the lessons that you hope the world will take? from COVID-19 and it being the inequality virus and all the things that it's been trying to teach us? <laughs> that sounds like a beauty pageant question. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, you know what, as I said, I think that we really need to listen more. Mm. As I said, listen and truly put it into action. What's marginalized groups have been saying. There's nothing about COVID-19 that marginalized groups have not said before. Before. Over that vulnerable groups have not said before. Over and over and over again. Right? If anything, it's that, you know, people are bearing the ramifications of ignoring this, you know, and having to deal with such an extent of grief and loss because they just chose not to listen. And I honestly don't think it's going to change anytime soon. I mean, we had the little black boxes. We had, you know, the whole thing of listen to marginalized groups, listen to women, listen to black people, center Africans. Pay black women. Da, 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 da. Black lives matter. It really doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. Mm. So I, I, I mean, yeah, I hope that that happens. But you know what? Power is one of these things that will always be a very human um, reality and existence. And the truth is, this is a conversation about power. And so people in power will never give up power, will always do everything within their might and their will to hold on to power and so you have a pandemic where billionaires are richer. Mm -hmm. Well, other people are suffering. So, yeah. Okay. Um, we're almost wrapping up. So this is usually my my favorite part. Favorite artist. You've, this one. Yani. It's Beyonce. Come on now. Yeah, but somebody <laughs> else who doesn't know you might not know. <laughs> Why Beyonce? Why I love Beyonce. I've loved Beyonce since, gosh, since the first time I saw her on, on the, you remember the Wycliffe Jean version of No, 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 the video? Yes. Yes. For me, it's, it's the work ethic. It's the fact that she has, and I think increasingly we're beginning to see all these documentaries and perspectives from women in the music industry and in the entertainment industry where they're explaining to you how exploitative that industry is, how they completely take your voice, your power, your earnings, everything, right? 
And this is a woman who came into this industry when she was a teenager and has managed to not only be the greatest living entertainer of all time, mm -hmm. but actually owns her art and is a black woman and owns that space in such an iconic way as well, right? Like you can recognize a silhouette of Beyonce. That's Anybody true. can. That's true. Right? Um, this is somebody who has a monument in the Mercedes factory, right? Has there's nobody that you can compare to that. And the fact that it's her is very inspiring. Okay. Why do you think that when it comes to Beyonce in particular, a lot of people try to I don't I don't even think the word is denigrate, like reduce her everything that she has done by constantly calling her overrated. Insecurity. Mm. Beyonce brings out the strongest insecurities out of everybody. And I can understand why. <laughs> she is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, we talked about where you grew up, so I'm not going to be surprised. But favorite food? Rice and any curry. Rice and any curry. Yeah. Okay. Um, favorite book? Winnie the Pooh. Interesting. Why? Have you read the quotes where Winnie talks to Piglet? I'm sure you've seen them as memes. They're very powerful. <laughs> they really are. They really actually are. And my favorite quote is this one where Winnie, Piglet asks Winnie, Winnie, what day is it? And Pooh says today. And Piglet says, that's my favorite day. Mm. Right? Like they just have very powerful, simple quotes that you know, just apply to life. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you have any favorite mantras? <sighs> Live your life like you're the most boring person on earth. Because then you don't overthink it. Mm. You're not thinking, oh, what will people think? Will people care? No, they don't care. How many people have died on the face of the earth? Who remembers them? Barely anyone. Mm. Just live your little boring life how you want. Do you consider yourself a boring person? Absolutely. Really? <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Everybody's boring as hell. And I promise you, nobody's thinking about you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll ask you two questions that I think I borrowed from Oprah. The first one is, if you could sit down with anyone in the world, living or dead, uh -huh. who would you, you want to sit down with over dinner and have a conversation? Oh, this is hard. Can I say three people? Yes, yes. That's what I said, anyone. For fashion advice and just being badass. Ori Manduli, yeah? Or Rogamanduli. Yes, yeah. Rogamanduli. And then for... Gosh, these two, I think it's it's tough, but I'm I'm having a hard time picking between Wangari Mother and Martha Karua for dealing with a dictator like Moi at the scale at which they dealt with him as, you know, women who are perceived as single in... Gosh, that, that was a chaotic time. I mean, it was a time when women couldn't even open bank accounts without their husband's permission. You know, Kenya has really come a long way from those days. And to go against somebody as mm. dangerous as Moi is wild. So, yeah, and, and definitely Aqua there. I love her. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Um, do you love all these people for their chaotic energy? Is that what it is? 
I don't think it's chaotic energy. Yeah. Not I, chaotic I, I, in I mean, a negative in a negative way, but like I think yeah. I think they're perceived as chaotic or perceived as you know um because they are disruptors and they just they were just like things can change and things will change. Right. You know? And Yeah, I think that's a very attractive trait. I think it goes back to what I said. If you live your life like you're boring, then you just don't care. Mm. Right? Like you you move. But in the case of people who've truly chosen an activism that n- not only um resulted in violence in their lives, th- that that goes even beyond that. Mm. That's truly admirable, right? And so yeah, I find that very inspiring. Okay. You said something before I go to my second question. You said that you said that they were all like single mothers or single women in a way. Why do you I find that very weird and I don't know if I should be asking this. I don't know how to phrase it, but I find like it's almost like in Kenya it's considered less than to be a single mother or a single person. It's almost like in a position of leadership, it's always the first thing that is used to attack and bring you down as if existing in your own you know with your on your own terms and your own whatever is that makes you less than and unworthy you know i mean it's kenya has very strange um values i think right so you'll judge the parent that stayed present who is the mom mm-hmm. who is the dad right mm-hmm. the dad should be judged but you're judging the parents that actually chose to stay present and take care of this child um when i think of kenya i think the thing that describes kenyans aptly is that you know poverty is the only crime in this country mm. there is no other crime uh and you know it's the only one that's prosecuted a chicken thief is definitely going to jail for many many years but you have people who you know and this is not me who said it it's the president we're stealing 2 billion shillings from this country every day and nothing is happening. So, I think we have a very skewed sense of culture and cultural values and it's unfortunate. Okay. Um second question that's um always asked. I don't know if I also borrowed this from Oprah. If you could have a conversation with your younger self, what would you tell that Mudoni? You will come out of it at some point and you know some things don't heal never will but such is life and there are always better people in the world always like do not be afraid to let go of anybody and everybody from family to friends to co-workers to working situations i promise you in this world of billions of people that there's a lot more opportunity there are a lot more better people and just keep it moving okay and where can people find you should they want to follow you they can, after they're done following jesus <laughs> right after they're done following jesus <laughs> okay where can they find you on uh, the socials twitter nonimg instagram nonimangi but as i said you're not going to find modoni mangi there if you want to find modoni mangi go to linkedin okay yeah So you've given them permission <laughs> yes. to find your LinkedIn and read through. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us. Next time we'll speak to Nani. Today we're speaking to Mudani Mike. <laughs>
Iya. 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 Bye. Bye everyone. Bye. Toodles. Bye. Hope you enjoyed that. Catch the next episode same time next week.